Okay, today I'm just outside Wimbledon with Tony Calvin. Tony, thank you very much. I, I've looked back through our messages and the first one I asked you, uh, Tom, I asked you to do this was in 2018. Jesus. So I am persistent and so were you, but ultimately, yeah. thanks very much you've agreed to uh, Five years. You are a persistent old dog, aren't you? It's <laughs> kind of, I always, I always think about because I'm pretty vocal in what I say um, on, you know, the Wade In podcast and the Racing Only Better podcast and, uh, and social media. I just think everyone just kind of like knows what I'm all about anyway, but hopefully there's a few things here that uh, I haven't divulged as yet, but happy to now. Right, so just so you've been in the industry since 1987, so mm. I imagine that's pretty much all you work in adult life. Yeah. Um, you've been a freelancer for a decade yeah. already. Um, do you enjoy the freedom that gives you compared to working for a Betfair in the Racing Post? Yeah, I mean, when I first joined the Racing Post in 87, it was, that's a, that's a strange story in itself because I was going to go to Warwick University to read history. But through my brother, Michael, who's an author and a sports journalist, he knew Howard Wright, who was from the Telegraph, and he, Howard was then at the Racing Post. So through him, I got a six-week job at the Racing Post in the summer of 87. And he ended up staying there for 11 years. I didn't go to university. And, um, you know, that's what kind of like formed it, really. Um, I just always involved from, you know, from racing from a young age, going down the betting shop with my old man and the dog when I was four or five. Um, it was something, the racing and betting caught me very, very early. And, and I mean four or five, yeah. So I was going to ask you about the racing post later, but now you've mentioned it, we'll go, we'll go into that. So yeah. at, what was your original job? Because that was racing post was only a year old at that point. Yeah, it, yeah. It was, um, I joined, um, like I said, just a, just a pretty dog's body in the, informa what was called the information services department. Uh, dealing with kind of like keying in form, dealing with kind of like data, you know, Weatherby's sent their entries through there and they were processed and, and put out into the computer. It was like very form. It was like seat of the pants stuff at the Racing Post and it was like, it was, it was chaos. Even a year in, you know, there'd still people be sleeping there overnight trying to, trying to sort out problems uh, with the print, etc. Um, but yeah, I mean, Information Services Department, that was, you know, there's some, there was some, looking back, there's some really big names because the Racing Post bought out Trainers Record the year before for, for their database. And with Trainers Record, they, they bought it off Peter Jones. With the Trainers Record, there were some really kind of like high profile people doing pretty mean, menial jobs in there. Dominic de Garden Hills in the department when I was in 87. He uh, obviously now BHA handicapper, senior handicapper. Uh, Mel Collier was there. Um, obviously went on to do price-wise. Uh, yeah, there were some really, really good people there. Uh, so it might have been a kind of like a low-key department. Uh, you know, it was just churning out all the all the information, really. But yeah, there were some big names started off there. And did anybody sort of take you under their wing and give you sort of a bit of advice and sort of show um, you away? Uh, yeah, not really. I mean, then it was kind of like, I mean, even though I was really young, I mean, I've always had my own ideas about the game, but there were some good people there. Um, Mike Shaw and the, that department might be a, rain, uh, a name recognised to some. Ian Heaney was there. He went on to, you know, be, you know, the, the brains behind a lot of the racing post improvements uh, from a from a technological side. Um, yeah, it was it was yeah it was good. It was like a team game, and it was fun in those days. Um, um, there was a built some really good friendships outside of that department. I, that's the first time I met Paul Keeley there. He was then, that 1987, that's the first time, you know, he's a lifelong friend and one of my best, if not the best friend I've got. 
he was um, he was he started off in the copy department you know taking copy and stuff like that a lot of people have built themselves up from a very very lowly position at the racing post and yeah we had we had a big punting and drinking circle there they it was like me keely uh jonathan k uh greyhounds jim austin greyhounds paul millwood um bruce the punting hairpiece jackson um he was on the subs desk and uh He's obviously racecourse reporter now, and he's, I think he's doing some job on the racecourse now, isn't he, for RCA, or is it? Or, I'm not yeah. sure. I haven't seen Bruce for a while, but yeah, we had, we had a very, very, a very, very active circle uh, socially, and um, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a story about it in a moment, if, if you want, but yeah, I mean, we, we had, do, we, do want, we, do. We, we had some scrapes, and um, like I said, we always, we always took the piss out of each other. I'm assuming I can swear in this, in stuff. Um, we always took the piss out of each other, I mean, we, card schools cash girl we used to go to great yarmouth all the time brighton all the time you know if we went for brighton for a day i remember paul keely once uh, he was left out because he had to work and he was so distraught he's finished his work early jumped in the cab from rains park to brighton which is like a 50 60 quid cab you know even back then in 80, uh, late 80s so yeah no one wanted to miss out and i always remember there was one story when um you know it's, it was um we went to Canterbury Dogs on the Friday night after racing, and it was a big coach load from the racing post went down there, and um, well, we had a pretty raucous night. I remember Millwood having, a, I think he had about 800 to one to win something in in a, in a photo in a photo finish, and he actually lost. So he went he went charging up there and stuff like that. So everyone took the piss out of him all day. But anyway, so we came back and we went to a girls' house that I was seeing from the racing post at the time, and everyone just crammed in there late on the evening. And um, so I retired to the, the bedroom with her and um, I woke up in the morning and they were all still there, but they'd left by then. But unfortunately, when they left, by the time they left, they managed to sneak into the bedroom and take all my clothes, everything, like keys, every single bit of clothing imaginable. And um, so I, to, and I was working for the Sunday correspondent back then. Uh, Anthony Harbage used to do that, but he'd gone away and stuff. He said, right, you, you are all right to do this on the Saturday. I said, yeah, yeah, I had to be at Newbury. And uh, so I woke up pretty late on Saturday morning and I had to borrow a towel, a fiver, to get a cab. I, I got in a cab and we were just a towel on and a fiver for him and, I hope, and hoping with the two people I was sharing were, were home and I had to have a mad dash to Newbury and stuff like that. It was one of the worst days of my life because I had obviously had a horrendous hangover. But yeah, that's the kind of thing that Keeley and Jackson and, and Millwood. I never, I never saw actually who instigated it, but yeah, that was that was one of the many scrapes that we all got into. Was, where was Racing Post based at that point? Range Park. Not, it's about, I would say, less than two two miles away from here. The actual offices from the outside still look the same. Actually, still got the red facade and stuff like that. But yeah, I was there till when it merged with the. I was, I, I, I went on to the. I was on the sports desk for a while. And uh, so, and I left there, you had the opportunity to stay on when it merged with the Sporting Life. You had the opportunity to stay on and go and work in Canary Wharf or take a, a generous redundancy back in, I think that was 97 or 98, probably 98. So I just took the money um, and, and I went out of racing for about, you know, three or four years, went to work for a couple of my brother's companies. Um, yeah, and then, like I said, I, I've always kept in touch with the guys from back then it was it was you look back everyone says you know the school days are the best days of your life and 
I, I look, look back on the racing post really fondly. Um, I've still got a first edition frame copy, uh, you know, upstairs and stuff like that. As much as I, I subsequently slagged the racing posters, as, lo as long as everybody else, I'm, I have a fierce kind of like loyalty. It's been tested, uh, as we'll come on to, from, from various stuff that they output at the moment. But uh, I always, I would always love the racing post, um, especially for what it stood for back then. And like I say, it was, I look back on it with a lot of fun, uh, a lot of enjoyment, um, and it was it was hard work. It really was hard work back then. But as soon as everyone finished six, seven o'clock, it was kind of like it was game on, and it was normally something to do with punting. And because Wimbledon was back open, Wimbledon Dogs was open back then, and we'd go down there. Wimbledon Wimbledon Dog Track had a nightclub afterwards as well. I think it was called Nelson's and stuff. And you know, it was basically it was just like carnage and cash cards. Calls were. Some of the cash that changed hands, you know, 25 years ago. Was it a bit like the, what we hear about the tail end of Fleet Street, where liquid lunches were normal and that sort of thing? Um, not necessarily liquid lunches back then, because, like I said, it was hard work. I mean, the, the systems uh, back then, everyone used to work on. You know, a lot of it was on the on the stone back then, and and then you, they were really formative, kind of like computers, like ATEX and stuff like that. I mean. I'm pretty computer illiterate and stuff like that, and I couldn't draw a page like like some of the guys do. But yeah, it was it was hard work. You got in. Well, I used to, get, you know, people used to come in at all hours from from ten till you know from ten o'clock onwards, and you stay there till the paper was off. So it could well be just seven o'clock, but as soon as seven o'clock gone, everyone was like there. I mean. Yeah, I, yeah it, the racing posts were good times. I mean, everyone just thinks, oh, the racing posts in those days, you had some good people writing for us, some informed people. But I can't, I was, I was thinking about it just before this, you know, how many big touches the business had as a whole, and I couldn't, couldn't think of any, but there was only one, and I was actually in the office early that, that morning. It was uh, early in 88, and Mark Coton used to write price-wise then. He had a man in the, in, in the Dick Hearn stable, and, um, I don't think he was in that morning, but a guy called Sean Byrne, um, who um, was, he was on the layout team and pagination team. So I always remember him coming into my information services very early, um, one morning. And he said, you've just got to get on this. He said, it was after the Nashwang Gallop. So I don't know whether Mark Coton called him, but basically everyone who was anybody who was in the office from 9.30 onwards or whatever it was, as soon as they came into the office, oh, you've got to back this, you've got to back this, and you've got to back then. And now, then, in, in those days, the bookmakers were quite slow. People were just getting on, not only for the guineas, they were getting on for the guineas and the Derby double and stuff like that. That was the only time where I would say inside information um, yeah, actually bore fruit with the racing pose. Otherwise, it was kind of, it kind of like grounded me just saying, just trust your own judgment rather than rather than the gossip out there, which, which is odd, really, because they had... Simon Crisford was, you know, you know, a trainer and obviously ex Godolphin. Uh, he was the new Newmarket correspondent back then, but no kind of like real kind of information permeated down. So, so were you getting a few quid punting back in those days? Uh, looking back on it now, I was just playing at it really. Um, and you've got to remember back then, you know, you had obviously no internet stuff like that. I mean, you're just getting your, your leaflets or your form books. Everyone used to kind of like rely on, on it, was, it was good because working in, in, at the paper, you were getting all, everything, you know, free information. You, you know, Superform was, Superform was the key back then. Um, 
and you know SOS, SOS took a while to come into the office as well so I think that took a year or so before I actually beamed into the office and obviously when that came in you actually could see it with your own eyes and you know taping it and stuff like that when that was a godsend that wasn't available to a lot a lot of people so yeah back then um, I probably look back on it and just think you know I should have done a lot better than I did but I think as with my writing uh, my punting has, has got better a lot better with age and um, were you tipping in the post ever? No, they used to, they do, one of the things that the information services do, they used to allow you to, uh, well, they didn't allow you to, uh, they had contracts with the Times and Independent, uh, as the tipping pieces for them, they used, those craves used to outsource it and the information services should do that. Uh, Times was belt and braces stuff, but Independent allow you to be kind of like quite flowery and writing-wise. Um, and it allowed you to kind of like yeah, yeah tip as as they were in the paper with a spotlight type type thing. So yeah, uh, met a lot of good people uh, at the racing uh, at the independent there. Um, Cobby John Cobbs now at the Racing Post still. Uh, used to deal with Greg Wood at the Independent as well. Got a lot of people, a lot of good people started the Independent. Paul Haywood, uh, Richard Edmondson. Uh, yeah, I mean it's a real so they would they had a real real strong strong thing, and we used to deal with those and. Yeah, I, I, I met a lot of people, I met people through, through doing stuff like that. Okay, Tony, the um, part one there, find some sort of amiable chat about the, about the racing post, but yep. a lot of people probably know you through your sort of fairly fearsome reputation, and your Twitter persona. Yeah. Um, you have a bit of a reputation for saying it how it is, and you don't really yeah. mind if people disagree with you. No. Um, is that is that something that you do because you were strict? Well, you weren't allowed to do it when you were working for like um, a company. You know, why is it you you sort of don't mind antagonising yeah, people? I deliberately didn't do it when I was working at Betfair. I left Betfair. We'll come on to the time at Betfair. You know, in a moment. But I left Betfair in 2013, um, and went to go kind of like. Uh, freelance and work for myself you know set up my own company and stuff i deliberately only joined betfair uh joined twitter in april 2013 um because I, you know I, I had the freedom to you know if i accept somebody i only had myself to answer to in fact i remember setting up i was so it useless and i still am i remember being around keely's house in yours up the road and he had to set up for me i, I was so so idiotic because yeah, it never really appealed to me and it'd been going for a while then i mean you probably know better than i do been, was going for a while but no uh yeah so yeah i joined in 2013 and i quickly got into the swing of things yeah and you've had there's been some quite sort of public spats that have captured yeah. the imagination no, of the people really with their popcorn please feel free to remind me yeah uh, well I, I don't really want to mention any names but if you can't really remember them it's probably no 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 if you, you if you trigger them I'm, I'm quite happy to say anything to, to anybody but i think like you know it's like, i I'm in a situation whereby I hate people just skirting around issues. I just think if there's something to say, just say it. And I understand people can't see it because they're in, you know, in certain jobs and, and the like. But if something annoys me or I've got a problem with something, I'll just come out and say it. And I don't care whoever kind of like disagrees with it because that's what, everyone's, that's what Twitter's there for. Everyone's not there to, to agree, are they? Um, and there are some people with different takes. I mean, I've got something spectacularly wrong and if I upset if I really upset somebody and they just say, look, can you please delete that? I have a policy of just saying, I'll just go back and delete it. Um, 
So if I really kind of like upset somebody, then yeah, I'll hold my hands up. And the one thing I do do, if I'm wrong, I'm always apologize and I always hold my hands up. But I'll always fight my corner. And like I say, I, I don't care if people think I'm over opinionated. And I've actually kind of like reined it back in the last couple of years. For, you, know, you, you have life changing things. You just think I don't want to get wound up about stuff. But yeah, then for about a good, I would say seven year period from 2013 to 2020, if something needed to be said, I said it, whether I was right or wrong, whether it was welcomed or not, because you know, and, you know, I can be a bit of an arsehole on there and I can be a lot of an arsehole on there, but you know, I, I'm, quite happy to, I'm quite happy to give my opinion. Has there ever been, a, ever been a time when you sort of woke up in the morning and looked back and thought, or maybe Yeah, oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Weekly basis, really. You know, I like a drink and stuff like that. And if you go, but a lot of people, a lot of people on, well, you see it with sportsmen and stuff like that. People go on there and people just say, look, get off, will you? You know, it's, yeah, a lot of stuff you end up talking absolute nonsense and things like that. But when I'm in a lucid frame of mind and I've got a strong opinion about it, I don't care who he comes on and disagrees, I'll have a row with anybody. Um, you know, it can be counterproductive, but you know, and I, I do come across very badly to, uh, you know, some of the times. So, but people who know me know I'm, 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 I'm okay. Well, I like to say I'm a, a quite an okay kind of like grounded person. I'm never one to take myself too seriously. And uh, like I said, if any, if I really upset somebody by going after them or revealing something that I I know and I probably shouldn't have done publicly, I'm quite happy to take it down and apologise to them personally. But a lot of the time bollocks i'll just run with it that's um i mean it, it's pretty difficult it's pretty well, easy to take offense by something that's written mm. as opposed to something that's being said yeah so is it i mean if you say you reined it in a bit recently is it difficult is there a fine line between being one of wanted to be seen as somebody that's opinionated and strong-willed yeah but not coming across the other side as being a bit of a bully um yeah i mean he's a real fine i mean i the problem i've got is because i've got a very dry sense of humor and i refuse to use emojis and i refuse to lose stuff like lols i mean kevin blake's always said to me he said you can make your life 90 percent easier if you just use the odd emoji, smiley face emoji, so I think it's juvenile bollocks, isn't it? So I'm not going to be I'm not going to be doing that. The tone of my tweet, I have a really, I have a really kind of like um, piss taking, quite a hard tone of of comment. Uh, but you know, there, there's no nuance on, on Betfair. People just people just read the actual copy and just can't read behind it. One of the one of the best accounts on Twitter, and he only just reached you know, a thousand followers. I think mean, you've interviewed him, Matthew Mantle. Um, he's, he's got a brilliant sense of humour. And everybody, uh, so many people misinterpret what he says. He's just a, a piss-taking digger, highly amusing. And a lot of the stuff he comes out with, I think he's genius. Uh, but a lot of people just don't get it because there's no sense of humour. There's no, there's no scope for people to just see, you know, Read, read what Tony said. Is he? I hate people talking about themselves in the in the third person. So yeah, delete, don't delete that. But yeah, everyone just take that from here. If I say something, um, I know where I'm going with it. And if people want to take take it another way, and just say you know, you know, playing to the stereotype. Oh, Tony's just out for a pop again. He's had a few drinks. He's off. He's after a row. It's not really like that. But you know, I I like taking the piss out of people, and I don't I don't mind if they're if they're I do mind if they're undeserving of it, but I don't mind if they are 
from the top to the bottom. I don't care. If anybody's caught in the crosshairs, that's fine. But I never, ever uh, bother about getting abuse back. In fact, I think that's what Twitter should be about. It should be about conflict. It should be about differences of opinions. If we all had the same opinion and agreed with ourselves, and I think that's quite a bit what's wrong with TV at the moment uh, and, and the media, is that, you know, there's it's pretty much a closed shop and people tend to agree with each other a bit too much and it just makes for a dull world. Has anybody ever taken it too seriously and will they've actually met you, sort of had a go at you? Or had a no, I, I, I've got an open policy. If anybody wants to ring me up for anything I've said on Twitter, on the Racing Only Better podcast or the Wade In podcast, um, they're quite happy to pick the phone up. Um, I'm quite happy to give my number out. Everyone's got my number, my email address. Uh, who... who who was, um, who took offence laces? Oh, I, there was a time when I called um, all, was it, it was all people, professional punters and stuff. I think I called them parasites or something like that. I wrote a blog about that. Oh, did you? <laughs> anyway, right, so, so basically because obviously if you're a professional punter, you're not giving anything to society because you're not paying any taxes, etc. And honestly, I had so many, that was like, that when I said that, and I'd never really backed down from it. It was a massive fucking pile of people. Was that, was that genius on your part, though? Did you no, 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 that? no, no. I just thought I, just thought, I actually thought it was pretty controversial because clearly, if you are getting your money from gambling, I mean, you are not really contributing anything to society, are you? You're not paying taxes. You're not, you know, you're not people. And, and a lot of people, people I've worked with, people like, well, yeah, I don't mind, but, you know, people like people who run kind of like businesses out of betting and they just, well, I do actually, I employ X amount of people. People like, uh, I think Steve Hyde, brilliant guy, uh, each way betting on Twitter. Uh, people like, I think like people like Nick Stone, brilliant guy, works with Andrew Black. Um, you know, they would come on to me, but only one person really picked the phone up and that was Matty Williams. I don't know if you've done Matt Williams. No. Um, uh, in running punter, used to work at the uh, the uh, Racing Post. Uh, great guy. Again, he started from a very lowly level, found in running punting. Anybody who makes that pay, fair play to him. And, he, you know, he's built up a really, really good life. I saw him, I've seen him a couple of times recently. He's involved with a few uh, Nolfeely horses, including Love Envoy. He actually rang me up and he said, I, I've just read, I just read this. He said, you're out of order. And Matty, Matty's like anybody. Matty's very much like me. If he's got a problem, he'll pick up the phone and have it out with people. So anyway, right, so I thought, after a minute, so we were having a row, and um, after a minute, after two minutes, we were laughing and joking, because I, I said, I'll take your point, but you know, when's the last time you kind of like chipped in for your local hospital and stuff like that? And and it got very, very, because I know Matt, and we, you know, we've had run-ins before and things like that, but it got very, very, very pally, very, very quickly, because he can say, you can say where I was coming from. And that's what I said, you know, you say something and on Twitter you haven't got time to really explain yourself, have you? You just say like, you know, you're, everyone just, everyone took away and you probably took away from that parasite. But if you actually drill down into it and just say, look, you know, fair play. If you, know, you are flying by the seat of your pants, you're punting every day. If you get it wrong, you, you've got nothing, you know, you've got nothing to give the missus and the kids and stuff. But at the end of the day is, if everyone was the same as that, society would be a very, very um, poorer place. Well, even poorer than it is at the moment. And with this government, it's on its fucking knees. So where did you used to vent your anger, or not, not anger, but your opinions before you had the outlet of Twitter? And oh, in person. I've always been over-opinionated. I, I get people's backs up. 
Um, but I don't really care to be honest. Even even now, I mean, like even doing the podcast with with all the other guys, you know. You know, even even in the pre-production kind of like pre-podcast chats and stuff like that, I want to cover something, and they said, no, no, that's no, not interesting. Uh, and we have a you know we have rows about it, and you know I got people's backs up when I worked at Betfair and stuff like. That. I one thing I I do pride myself in I'm everything I've done, I go into it and I'm fully prepped. Um, we'll come on to racing TV in, in, a, in a bit, but I'm always all over my subject matter. And even if I'm wrong about something, and Neil Channing says, you know, I'm not, I, I may not be the best punter out there, but I'm, I'm the most, I try to be the most professional. And I'm very similar to that when it comes to topics, when it comes to knowing my subject. So if any people want to have an argument about something or about horsing or about racing or about politics, something like that, I'll only go into it if I know what I'm talking about. I may be wrong, often am. Uh, but I'll I'll have a bloody good uh, I'll bloody have a good argument uh, with it and like I've always been I've like I said I, I know the way I like things to be done and that does that has always got people's backs up whether it been at um, the racing post been at Betfair um, or whether it been at racing TV or whether it was the stuff I do at the moment it's kind of like I've always been brought up to speak your mind uh, from my old man. And it, you know, my brother, all my my three brothers are the same and stuff like that. We're all kind of like, if something's if something to be said and you think your position's right, then run with it and bollocks to everybody. Now, racing, everybody says all about opinions. So do you think that single-mindedness has aided you in your success as a punter and a tipster? Um, yeah, I mean, the punter and tipster stuff. My I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts and everyone's, you know, there's many ways of skiing a cat, aren't there? For me, it's very, very simple. Um, so I've, I've got no massive insight here. I read all about strategies and listen to your, you know, podcasts about, you know, people doing different things, different strategies. But for me, I think betting and punting is about instinct. Now, you have a situation where I used to, I made a lot of money betting and running on on rugby matches from between, I would say, 2004 to about 2009, 2010. In 2010, I think they brought in cross-matching uh, on in running stuff at, at Betfair, which kind of like clipped my wings a bit. But I would say, and it was unhealthy at the time, but so in that six period, I lit, in that six year period, I reckon I punted on virtually every single live, every single live um, rugby union match and that's going from the Super, fifth, uh, super, uh, super 15, as it was then, <coughs> uh, in, on Friday mornings, up until the Rugby League, <coughs> Super League matches on the Sunday night. And I had a young kids then. I mean, that was, my boys would have been, God, it's embarrassing to say, actually. My boys would have been 10 and 12, and I was just sitting there on the screen all day with the missus, you know, doing everything with them. Um, the reason being, because I made myself about a 10s on chance to win in running. And when I come back to say punting is all about instinct, I just had the back then, and the numbers would bore it, uh, did bear it out. I just had instinct watching rugby matches, what prices they should be at any given moment. Uh, and I had a strategy back then. <coughs> I just, just I put in loads of bets, all manually. It wasn't <coughs> wasn't grass, you wasn't using one touch software, all manual, all manually inputted bets there. And I just put in a, a big lay about what price I'll be happy to lay, even if the team I'm opposing scored 
the converted drive, the next one. And the amount of times you used to get matched, <coughs> pardon me, the amount of times you used to get matched when, you know, they looked like scoring, but they didn't score. It immediately put you into a, a massive position. So yeah, I mean, a lot of the money I've won on Betfair would have been from that period. But since then, I, I, I learned the error of my ways there and I just thought, right, this is unhealthy. <coughs> this is unhealthy and I'm just going to punt more on, on racing. And my, my attitude to racing is very simple. Watch a lot of races, get the best price and then go from there. Right, so you, you mentioned that you were a beneficiary of betting on Betfair in mm. the previous part on the rugby and stuff, but you, you started working with them in 2002. Once again, you were in at the early, at yeah. the early point. Um, that, must have been, that must have been glorious to be the, you were the PR, your press officer. Uh, yeah, I was head of media from 2003 to 2013 um, uh, under Mark Davis's team. Um, but I, I, I joined that. I, some, a, a guy called Peter Sellers rang me up in 2002. So this new company um, that's come out. It was, it, was, it was around for two years beforehand, but it was very, very niche. And, um, but he rang me up in 2002 and said, this, this is going somewhere. So they were in Parsons Green then, really little offices. And he said, uh, and he was heading up the telephone betting team. So he said, come along. And I was obviously working for, uh, I was out of the industry then. So he come back in. It was, wasn't a lot to him. And he said, come back in on the telephone team. And it was you know, loaded position, picking up the phone and stuff like that. But they were, they were met, went there one night, which is not far from here, just on the you know, few tops on the tube. And it was very, very similar to the early days of the Racing Post. It was kind of, there was a, it was a telephone team of about 15 to 20 people. Um, and a lot of, there were, a lot of them were ex-City. They'd just been turfed out there. And they're just basically taking bets on the phone. Um, and, but it was such a great, vibrant atmosphere. Again, it was a very much a drinking culture. Uh, and there were some good people on there. Um, one of the team leaders then, back then was Tom Morley, um, who um, has gone on to own a lot of racehorses with Robert Cow, Stuart Williams and stuff like that. We used to call him Posh Tom and yeah, he was there. And there were some really other good people then. And obviously uh, from, too fast because I yeah, they were trying to build up their build up their kind of like profile when in a, after about a year or so after they moved to Hammersmith, uh, Mark Davies come and said, obviously you know a lot of people in in racing, you know a lot of people in you know the media and stuff like that. So I went on board there and again started from a pretty lowly position and uh, I'm, I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty. But yeah, it was the early the first year or so in that trading room, in, in taking bets and stuff, uh, was quite an eye-opening. And looking back now, um, I remember people like Johnny Herndall coming up, I and mean, I don't know anything about him, but... Um, Johnny Lights. Johnny Lights, but I, I've, I've heard of Johnny Lights then, because I remember, I, I, when I was at the sport, when I was at the Racing Post, one of the first big features I did, and I'm probably blamed for all this, one of the first big features I did was on Harry Finlay. And it, I, we went around Ascot for a day with him, and he was like, talking about Johnny Lights and stuff like that. But so when I went to Betfair and taking bets on Johnny Hearns over the phone, didn't even know who it was, but there were some, yeah, there were some really good people come on that phone then. Uh, again, I, I'm sure a lot of people got chatting to them and things like that and you know, took inf inside information out of it. I personally didn't. Um, well, you didn't jump on the phone when you got a lively person on? No, not really. Not really, I'm, I'm not really like that because um, it all comes back to the racing post and stuff like that. Look. 
if someone came on and said, look, this guy is absolutely fucking mustard. He's 10 out of 10 with his training and stuff like that. Of course, yeah, you'd have a bet. I, but I don't readily recall that. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not one for kind of like betting on like, information. If it tallies with what I think of the race, fucking happy days, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure a lot of uh, underhand stuff used to go on back then over the phones, yeah. But I mean, being the, being the sort of press, mm. you know, in charge of the press there, the cat, it must have been, must have been tremendous because there was nothing negative at all, was there? Everything, oh, was, gosh, pos yeah. everything was positive? No, no, on the, op to the total opposite. Um, because everyone got to rely, I mean, people don't remember, some of the, they never really come out really, I mean, uh, but it's, it's been in the public domain, but no, back then, and I'm talking about 2000 and 2001, if you had a racing bet on Betfair, and it was a non-runner, you lost your money, because they didn't have a rule four system in place, they didn't have a reduction factor in place, so when people in the press used to get the non-runners first coming through, people used to go on Betfair and just lay them. I had no idea. No. Know. And honestly, back then, because there was no full full system in place, it's only when, I think 2002, when Burke came up with, you know, and it, people still moan about the reduction factor system. Back then, if you laid a non-runner, you got your money, and the, and the backers lost it. So, you know, and, and, and every time the system went, every time the, the website crashed, we had the racing post on, because all the people at the racing post were betting on Betfair. They'd latched, or they latched onto any quickly. So if someone like, you know, Millington or anybody of that was in a position at, yeah, at the time, an exposed position, and they don't know what's going on because the site went down, right on the phone, when's it coming back up? Uh, any number of things, you know, there was, um, I was on holiday at the time and there was a tennis scandal. Um, um, that was in 2006 where they ended up voiding a market. Can't even remember all the details of that, but that was, it was the first time we've ever voided a market. That was all kinds of stuff. Uh, every time there was a drifter, and we had it again to a certain degree, um, very recently with Desert Crown last week. Um, you know, every, all the press, you know, latched, saw it, Desert Crown drifting from 5.5 to 7. That, you know, rang up Stouty and, oh yeah, yeah, he's had a setback, not running. Uh, but back then, every single journalist was looking at bet for anti-post markets, however illiquid, was just looking for a story. And they were just saying, and then they, you know, they, and st they still hate ringing up the journalists. Uh, the, the journalists still hate ringing up the, the trainers and owners now when a horse drifts on an anti-post market, because a lot of the time there are some, you know, there's some false kind of like drifts and stuff. But so every time a big uh, a big name horse drifted, uh, journalists would get on the phone and just saying, how is it fair that people profit even from inside information? Um, God, yeah, I, mean, I would say it was the press were overwhelmingly negative towards it and I, I could there'll be any number of ideas where they all loved it personally um they all loved it personally but you know profession it's prof changed massively isn't it? because i remember being with people that were winning on betfair and mm. they would have account managers who would invite them to the marquee yeah. for that choked them and places yeah. like that and then it it, it sort of turned around to what it's become. Yeah, was that when you were still there? Did it yeah, yeah, I, I was still there. I mean, we used to help. We used to host some kind of like debauch kind of like uh, marquees at Cheltenham and stuff like that. I mean, literally everyone who was anybody would try to get in. I mean, I was no, not because I looked like a fug. Um, I used to kind of like help on the kind of like door because there was a load of invites there and it was all a free bar. And we used to take massive kind of like marquees and. I had to turn away trainers who were turning up with 20 people looking for 
an easy place to get a drink because I don't know if you ever went in one of those uh, Cheltenham marquees that we had. It was like plusher than plush. I mean, it was like unbelievable the money they must have spent there. Uh, but yeah, it's it was, there was so many kind of like things to it at Betfair. I mean, they don't they didn't get a lot of credit because they did try to stamp out a lot of the stuff because obviously if you you back in the land and people are like oh you're unlicensed layers unlicensed bookmakers i'm sure you still get that out there now when you when you're up and around but you know that my time there mark davis primarily drove all the memorandums of understanding um you know ha had it across all sports i mean when i left there it, it went from naught to early, uh, early you know early 50s and whether or not they are effective I'm not so sure, but yeah, I mean, coming back to your question about the, you know, account number, account uh, managers and stuff like that. I mean, there was a time when, you know, I had one um, because, because of the rugby stuff primarily. Uh, but obviously, no, I just said, look, I don't need that. But when you think back on it, people were making fortunes at Betfair back then, more so then than now, because it was, you know, formative state. Everyone's, I imagine a lot of people you interview said the golden age of Betfair would be between 2000 and 2010. And I found that with my rugby betting in the latter part of that decade. But when you think about it, why would you be inviting all the big accounts who win? And, and that there, was a, there was a magic moment in somebody who just said, look, why are we inviting all the winners? Why aren't we inviting all the losers? Because we need the losers more than the winners. Because all the winners are taking out of the ecosystem, aren't they? You want, you want to kind of like, Know, kind of like compensate the losers as well, give them the day out and stuff like that because there are a lot of people out there that you know that, who are losing a lot of money and uh, and winning a lot of money and you know that's you know we might come onto affordability checks or, or deal with it now. I mean I I haven't got any problem when I've been asked by two. Well, I only really bet with three bookmakers anyway. I can't get on anywhere else and I, I use other people, but I don't really bet as much now as, as I used to. But the affordability, if someone asked me to provide my bank details or, you know, give them a yearly company account if they want to read it, I haven't got any problem with that whatsoever. But I fully understand people are more secretive than me, more open. I, I'm a, fundamentally, I'm a very open person. Not on the stuff that I go out there and I'll just say what I think and I don't care who it upsets. But, yeah, I'm a, I'm a kind of like open book there. I mean, I understand people have privacy concerns and I know a lot of good friends and just say, look, if people ask me for anything, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to tell my wife or my partner this kind of stuff. Well, you know, that's fine. But, you know, you've got to take, there is a wider responsibility there. I mean, affordability checks is a, is a weekly show on its own and right. But personally, I haven't got any problems with it. It clearly not been done ideally. It's not really clearly not done well. But I think the actual, if the, the actual implementation was done a lot better, I wouldn't really have a lot of problems with affordability. But that's just me. I like saying I'm a very very, very open of individual, and I think that the losers and the big losers should be protected. Um, right, we'll just carry on with Betfair a minute, and then we'll get yeah. on to the rest of it. So, yeah. uh, obviously, you still, you're still you freelance again now, but you still do stuff for Betfair. Yeah. So, I understand if you don't want to say what you think no, no, necessarily. No, no, no. But well, how, what's your personal opinion on whether Betfair was a good or bad thing, ultimately, in hindsight? 100% a good thing. Given punters the, you know, even so, even more so now, I think, obviously, with the restrictions and stuff, um, it's fundamentally a good thing. I mean, I mean, I get limited everywhere, and I think you just have to deal with it. But if I want to go on Betfair, you know, and do what I do, then, then I can do I mean, the problem I have, and obviously, and, and Betfair were one of the firms who asked me for my affordability details. They rang me up, and I went through it all. Um, 
Like I said, look, whatever information you want, I'll give it to you. Um, so one of the issues there is, um, well, I will say this now. I mean, if, for example, I'm, because I bet a big prices, primary. If I'm, if I'm on a 50s and 33s and it's a big shortener, there was, there was an occasion recently, a couple of months ago at Newbury, I latched onto one early, got it at 40s and 33s, and various, various, various few people, I, I managed to get about 200 credits out on it at 40s and 33s. You know, in itself, from when I was betting in, in the late, kind of like 2000s, that wouldn't have been a, a hardly a big position at all on, on a rugby match. So I used to take, you know, I used to have, you know, you, know, you should, you know, fouls, winning, uh, primarily winning, but you know, I'd lost kind of like four figures in some rugby matches, but more consistently I won. Now, for example, now, if I wanted to lay back the horse in question, I got fucking backed into 10, got beaten a short head. But if I wanted before the race, if I wanted to take out, uh, lay it at 12s or 13s, I think he went off around about that. If I wanted to lay back 400 quid at 11 or 12 and the horse won, I'll be bollocks because I've lost four grand in one bet. And they'll be asking me to just say, look, and that would be massively out of kilter with, with my, my, you know, taking a four grand position. And even if I provided in details of other bets I've had, now that's going to be problematical because a lot aren't in my own name. And the ones that were wouldn't, 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 massive, wouldn't particularly cover the four grand odds. So I'm having to take a position and stay with it now rather than laying off. Obviously, you're putting in running lays and things like that. But that's, that's one of the ways that... Uh, the affordability checks have, have affected me, my betting, not my not my openness. But yeah, the, I mean, the t I think it's great. I mean, Betfair is, again, it's been a brilliant, I'm, I'm lucky to be there actually. And I'll tell you this story because I've actually, I think Millington wrote about it in print once and I, someone asked me about it for the weekend and this was quite a funny one. And I'm surprised, uh, I'm surprised and said I had the job afterwards. It's very early on. I think it was 2003, 2004 at Cheltenham. And back then, yeah, money was quite tight with Betfair. And uh, so I was in, they put you in a bed and breakfast. Uh, and play, and I, I, was, I think I was sharing, bunking up with, with a guy called Ray Fowle, um, very Irishman in the very early days of Betfair. Anyway, on, on the last night at Cheltenham, I'm not even sure, when was it a three day festival at Cheltenham? Not, if it was 2003, 2004, it was still three days back there, wasn't it? Those day, yeah. Anyway, so I think it might be the first night. It was the last night anyway. So I went out and had a big one. It was still, uh, still another day to come. So I went out there, and three o'clock, I was sitting in the Queens and stuff like that. And I, um, and I was obviously still with someone at the time, but anyway, I'll tell you now. I'm sure my, my boys haven't heard it, they, they, you're just about to, lads. So anyway, so I ended up pulling a student in the, in the Queens at three o'clock. Anyway, so I went back to her digs. I don't think anything happened. Anyway, I went back to her digs anyway. So I woke up in the morning and I was like, very early, six o'clock or whatever. And I was still massively hungover. Anyway, so I just put on my strides, had some coins here, had some coins in my pocket, left my phone there, left my keys there and everything. And I just went across the road um, to get a racing post, just as they were opening up. So anyway, so I stumbled out of there, just had a shirt on thing, you know, a few quid in my pocket, but I think I even left my wallet, my phone and my keys there anyway. Anyway, well, I just popped across the road, you know, no problem. Probably shouldn't have done because she could have robbed me. But so I went across the road, get a racing post before I just like wandered back into town or whatever. And there wasn't one there. So I thought, so I asked them, when's the next news agent? So around the corner. Oh no, sorry, they haven't been delivered yet. I literally, I went on to the fourth one till I found it. Now, 
as soon as I got the paper man and walked out of the shop, I had, I was literally horrified. I had no idea where she lived because I've gone from, I've gone around Cheltenham and I couldn't find where it was. So the situation was, I rang one of my brother's companies and, um, and they're kind of like transport department. I said, keep on ringing my phone. Keep on ringing my phone because I, I need to, I, I need to get the details there. And like I said, I was, I was so basically, I, she wasn't answering. I tried, I tried ringing up and stuff like that. And I was just sat in a boozer all day and I just got drunk and drunk and they like that. And I'm not joking, I was just like resigned to failure. At five o'clock she's walked in, in a bike, student, into this pub. And I've never been so happy to see anybody in my life before or since. And I just, why don't you fucking pick the phone up? And it was like, she said, oh, I didn't like to answer. There was like a hundred of missed calls when she went back, went back to her house and stuff like that. And I always remember I was, I got so, I was drunk enough then. I got so drunk after. Uh, and then Bruce, uh, Bruce Jackson picked me up. I was slumped in a telephone box in near Montpellier and he picked me up and dropped me home um, when I was just living around the corner then. And how I, and that was, I so we totally missed the last day of Cheltenham. Bruce actually went to the, the digs or wherever my stuff was and picked that all up for me. So, yeah, I'm, I was very lucky to survive the first two years at Betfair. Okay, Tony, right, we, we, you know we've talked, you said you're freelance. You're a, is it fair to say you're a broadcaster, tipster, pundit? Would that be your... Yeah, not probably not as grand as that, but yeah, I like to think I'm relatively good in, in what I do now. And which, which of those do you enjoy the most, or are they all sort of intertwined? Now, writing's always been my greatest passion. I think I'm I'm not half bad at it. I can make a very good case. Um, I like writing at length. Um, Betfair allow me to do that. You know, if you work for the Racing Post, for example, you yeah, they're only allowed 700, 700, 800 words, and they don't have time to build a case. I have tight, they give me carte blanche to do it. I mean, I'd, I'd often film, you know, 2,000 plus word pieces on, on the next day's racing. And yeah, I like the freedom it gives me. And, you know, I, I, you know my record says I'm, I'm a half good at it. And I tend to go very big prices, uh, go on very long losing runs. But you know, a lot of people out there don't have the mentality to deal with losing runs. And it is, it can be a, can be a ball they can really nag it away with you. Um, you know, a lot of high-profile journalists have tried to their own tipping sites and try to, you know, do you know columns in the Racing Post and come a cropper because they can't deal with, they can't deal with, um, you know, the losing runs and, and not being profitable. But I go out there and I think it's essential for every tipster to put their profit and loss on their columns if it is uh, a mention prices. If it is, if they don't, I give them very little credibility to be honest with you. Now, I was going to mention this if you flip forward a few here, but. Um, yep. You do, I know you tip big priced horses. Yeah. And you are a good judge, of, you know, you do win money. Yeah. But you've mentioned you get long losing runs. Do you yep. think your average podcast listener or article reader mm. is able to deal with those sort of facts of betting life? Yeah, well, I think so, because I'm, if you everyone reads my columns, I'll always admit when I'm on a long losing run, I never crow about, overly crow about big price winners. Um, but the people who follow me, and I would say the numbers that Betfair get readers and, and the length of time they're on there, I would probably put that up against any other, most other columns. I, I would imagine you Taylor gets a lot, 
a, a lot of clicks because he's, he's the best out there. But the, the figures I get and the viewing figures I get, it's clearly, it's clearly an area I think. A lot of people may look at my tips and, you know, look, my average price would be 12, 14 to one. And, you know, sometimes, you know, 60, 60, 50s quite regularly. I think people may look at mine and just think, yeah, yeah, it's a punt, but I'm willing to take the, you know, the losing runs. Um, they might stake accordingly, but you know, very rarely. A lot of people revert, you know, get a bit cowardly and just if they're on a big losing run, they'll start chipping around six to four chances. I'm a terrible judge of a short price. I can tell you, I can tell you if a, a double figure price is is well over, but I can't, I couldn't tell you if a, a two to one shot is a six to four chance. And I think that's a gift. It's a, it's a gift that I don't have. But to answer your question, my viewing figures. Uh, um, and uh, would, would tend to suggest that people bear with me. Does your tipping mirror your personal betting, or yeah. is your it, it does? So you hundred percent. I mean, anything. <clears throat> I know people on TV uh, and do tipping columns um, who actually don't tip what they bet, uh, especially on TV, and it stands out a fucking mile, and it does my head in. Uh, everything I tip, I bet, and. I may have bet beforehand, I'll be honest about that. Um, and, but I may wait until the column goes live because I sit on that, I write that column, I, I write it, rewrite it. Well, as soon as it's ready to go live, I check all the prices. I would often pull a tip at the last minute if that price is gone. And I only, I, remember I only tip at Betfair prices uh, and I don't just cherry prick all the prices. I, and all my tips are settled, all my exchange bets are settled to, at Betfair SP. So even if I spot a rick and it's 34 on the exchange in a liquid market, I'm not going to claim a 33 to one win if it wins. I'll just take the rough with the smooth and, and settle that bet for SP. I think it's fundamental that people who tip, um, put their profit and loss there, record a price, a guide price, even if it, and a current price, and record their P&L. If they don't, I think they're lying to themselves and they're lying to their readers and viewers. How relevant is their P&L in time-wise, what 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 sort of period of time would you want them to record that period? I from? I for me, I probably tried, I tried to do it in a yearly basis. Um, so, but I all my figures are there. I mean, if I've got, for example, I I started afresh at the start of the flat season, and I can tell you now, it's I'm minus twenty-five point eight since in the last two months, and that bothers me. Uh, but you're only kind of like, you know, I mentioned the 33 to one men who got beat by Shorthead. I mean, they're doing so many kind of like near misses, but I'm quite happy, look, I'm quite honest and say, look, and it does bug me. So I've had a week off, come back fresh, uh, and I'll be lying to suggest that I need, I would, I want that in plus again, sooner rather than later, but I'm not gonna, sh I'm not gonna change my MO because I know if I start chasing shorties, that's just not me. And if I was tipping six to four chances in, in order to get the P&L down, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be backing them myself. Basically, yeah, I mean, I, I just, TV tips just have it easy, don't they? Because TV tips, everyone says, oh, he's a great judge. How do you know if a TV tips is a great judge? There's no accountability, there's no P&L, there's no tracking. I mean, the racing posts are the worst because they never, they, they, the tips don't mention prices in copy. They don't mention guide prices, um, you know, I won't. I wasn't just going to mention that. It's like they have to. Racing posts haven't adapted. You know, I mean, if you read uh, a Tom Segard or a Paul Keeley, you know, they they go up at six o'clock, and people be, can be coming to that eighteen hours later. 
There's no mention of a price here, no mention of a guide. How do they know? And the market's obviously shifted dramatically. People come into that, that, that column afresh. have got no idea what price to take. Um, Johnny Deneen writes a column now. I mean, I, I, I couldn't disagree with somebody's column or his betting methods more than I do him. Now, you know, there's no mention of prices. Yeah, there'll be bets at the short end of the market. If he thinks it's going to win, it's fine. But, you know, I never met the guy, and apparently he's a lovely guy and stuff like that. But you'd have to be to kind of, like, tip and, uh, uh, and argue as he does um, and, and, and still get away with it. I mean, I honestly, how, how the Racing Post can continue on that strategy of not mentioning prices and odds and P&L is, is beyond me. Is, are you then in the camp where if you make something a 20 to one chance mm. and you can back it at 33, mm. even if you don't particularly think it's going to win, that's the value bet, is that you? Yeah, yeah. I would say the overwhelming number of, uh, the overwhelming amount of tips I have and bets I have, I don't really, I don't particularly fancy. I mean, obviously, if, it, if you make uh, a something a 12 to one chance, you can get 33 to one about it, it's still, you're still only going to be right one in, one in, you know, one in 13 times, if that's right. So by the very nature of the prices I play at, I can't particularly fancy them, and I don't particularly think they're going to win. But what I do know is, if I'm getting 33 to one about a 12 to one shots, which, you know, I do kind of half move the market as well, uh, I'm going to do that all day long because my betting and I've really been tipping since maybe for the last kind of like 10 years and it is it's, it's not it's not stressful in the fact that you know that people haven't got a pot to piss in and they don't you know can't buy groceries and you know you know and do a proper manual job where stress is part of their life but it does come with I me mean, I am very hard on myself I me mean, I am my own worst critic and I I take it personally I won't go out. For example, a lot of the guys round here all come back from Cheltenham on the Friday morning this year. And I had a really bad Cheltenham. And I said, I'm not going to come out. And they went, all went down the local pub. Lowe's down there, all going out. And I, I had a really bad Cheltenham up until the Friday. And I said, no, I'm not coming out and enjoying myself because anybody who's been following me this week aren't enjoying themselves. They've done their money. I'm not, I'm not going out and pretending I'm, I'm fun and enjoying myself. And two, and two races in, Favoir wins the county hurdle by that much. These are the margins. I tipped out at 50s, one at 40s, bigger than Betfair's P. Uh, I got a load of texts saying, come down now, you miserable bastard. You know, you're happy now, aren't you? And I just thought, no, I'm not. Because, you know, how many, you know, what you mentioned before, how many people have kept the faith with a 50 to one poke and things like that. But I, I, honestly, I'm, you can have a go at me all you want, but I am really, really hard on myself. And on losing runs, I'm... I'm insufferable, but I do, I tend to just double down and really get with it. But, I mean, you'd say in that, so are you actually comfortable tipping then? Because, yeah. you know, you, you want to talk, you say that the, you know, you the figures, in fairness, for any tips, there should be like 12 months at least. Yeah. You have a bad Cheltenham, which is the hardest racing in the whole year. Yeah. And then you're beating yourself up. Yeah, of course So, is it not putting, is it, is it comfortable for you to do that? No, it's not. But I mean, like, I'd rather do this. I mean, I, I have fallen out of love with, with racing to a little bit for various political reasons and things like, you know, we haven't really got time to go into. Well, we but, have, if you want to say. Uh, no, it's kind of like, you know, the way the sport is run. 
Anybody who listens to me on, on the Wade In podcast on a Monday uh, and on the Racing Only Better podcast on you know, any number of times during the week during the big festivals, they know I'm very disillusioned with the way the sports run um, from the BHA, from, from the top to the bottom. I just think it's so unprofessional, it's untrue. Um, and I get that people you know, rail against the affordability checks. I mean, it's like you said, it's, I'm sure a lot of people, you know, it's, but you know, the grass is always greener, but I'm quite happy what I'm doing. But you know, if, if it all stopped tomorrow and I had to go and do something different or just had to do that, you know, I, I would do. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that because like I say, I think I'm good at what I do. I think I, anybody who writes me, they're not getting a one sentence argument for a horse. I couldn't do that. If I'm gonna make a case, they can make their own mind up. I like I say, I write a really thorough tip. If I'm tipping a horse, you won't just get, you know, two bullet points. This is why it should win. I'll, I'll write a full summary. I like to think people, it's more kind of a lot higher for people who want an argument. And if they read my argument and just think, no, I think he's talking bollocks. They might, a lot of people I know do read my column, people that, you know, there. But and they, you know, just because they, they will get kind of like, a very kind of like rounded argument from the stuff like that. They may disagree with it and they just might think, I'm, like I said, I'm talking nonsense and thing, but a lot of people do, if they want to dismiss it after the argument, it's like anything. If, if you listen to someone arguing a case on question time, etc., you give them time, you listen to them and you just say, at the end of the day, I think you're talking bollocks, I don't agree with you, move on. But like I say, I, I do provide myself, I pride myself on the professionalism and, um, and the commitment and the analysis and the professionalism I put in. Okay, well, coming from a, a Betfair background and seeing it right from the start, you've seen the sort of shrewdies, mm. the, the, the influential money that yep. goes in there, laying hand back. So where do you sit when you fancy one at 12 to one on the day it's 40? Are you having more on or are, yeah, you, or yeah. are you getting out? Always, never get out. I mean, we come on to it. I mean, I think... Um, so is Betfair less influential now than it used to be? Because that would always no, be a look, red light, wouldn't it? We've all got, we've all got, we've all got our kind of like attitudes to this. There are some people, uh, there are some people who would take a loss if a horse drifted. Um, I've always found it very strange that, and I've always, I ridicule people who say this. They say, oh, "I was going to back it, but the price was too big." And I'm thinking, "What the fuck?" You know, so a horse is eight to one, and you're expecting it to be twos and you're not backing it. Now, I understand the reasoning behind that. Oh, it's not fancy. But, you know, if you want to, if you're, I can, there's any number of horses that, that, that drift massively, you know, from, from when I put them up. But that's just the way the market is late on. Um, you know, as well as I'll do, you know, the market will be going on happily for five minutes beforehand. And then the next, you know, there's like carnage just before the off, isn't there? Um, yeah, I mean, I say everything, everything is about price. If, if it's too short, I'm not backing it. If, it, if I make it a 12 to one shot and I'm getting 40, 50, 60, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going in again and again and again. And what I'll do then is, all I'll do is, and I'll just, I'll just stack up the in-running lays. If I'm taking 60 and 50 and 40s, I might just stack up the in-running lays at 21, 11, 5, 4, 2.18, 1.54. And just say, if you are right, you know, you know, you do get suspects, right? Don't get me wrong. I think the racing is probably as... I think it could be a hell of a lot straighter. And I don't really bet much during the week because of that. Because, you know, you sometimes you have to be on a double. You know, you have to be on a trier as well as a winner. And um, the lower class racing is really not for me. But no, it, everything is about price. And 
if it's much bigger than I think. You have to work on the basis of the game being straight, otherwise why are you in it? Tony, final part. Now, you're on Twitter as much as I am, but probably a bit more. Um, we hear a lot on Twitter about punters who can't get on. The mm. trumpet emoji comes up yeah. whenever I see it. Now, they're very vocal, but they're the tiny minority, aren't they? I mean, most punters lose. Yeah. They must do. Well, and the, they've, the figure never had, they've never had it so good, have they? Really? No, the figure that bandied around is like 90% of punters are losers, aren't they? And the other three are lying to themselves. Yeah. But um, it's kind of. I mean, I used to, it used to really bug me, but you know now I can get on with. Um, oh, I'll say um, I get on with Bet Victor, uh, William Hill, uh, and the Betfair Sportsbook. I'm not. I might. I'd be a couple of those would be maximum takeout, uh, five hundred quid per bet, which is not ideal. But every other firm down the years uh, have closed me but once they close me I might have the occasional moan but you know it's it, you know I am my, my record suggests I'm on you know I'm I would win in the long term but my betting has come down from it's kind of like heyday and like I say I don't bet as much during the week but you know fair play to those three firms for doing it like I said it's some bets are limited not even to that some bets would be listening to a maximum take out of 200 quid and and that's clearly a bit of a piss take, but especially when you're bet if you're betting 48 hours out, which is fine, but I'll do a lot of my betting uh, on, on the exchange once that livens up. But you know, there was a time when I used to really rail against, kind of like, it's an absolute disgrace, but it isn't going to change. If anything, it's going to get worse, isn't it? Well, so you, you mentioned earlier on about pro punters and you called that big furore when you said that they're parasites yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you may not be a pro punter, but you're a winning punter. Yeah. So should bookmakers lay either professional punters or well-connected punters or just winning judges like yeah. yourself to, like, to lose large sums despite knowing they're always going to come second to them? Is, no. Are they morally obliged to? No. No, not at all. Like, I, I don't... Look, people who moan about it, if people are saying, look, I can't get... You know, opening shows 10 to 1, they think it's going to be fours. You know... If they're trying to get a 500 quid on or a grand on, they know in their heart of hearts that, you know, they're living in dreamland. And, you know, they've got, they've got to have some sense of reality. Um, I mean, I know Ben Keith, the way he operates is, I mean, you're quite happy to lay very big bets on the show when you know the market's really, really solid. I mean, if you are laying, punt, uh, you are laying punters 48 hours out when the market's gone up, I mean, I'm, I'm the worst, I'm the worst person in the world. I'll just sit the, the golden hour for punters, if you can get on, and you can't get onto any size there, but if you can get on via other accounts or whatever, to a certain degree, the, the golden hour is between 11 and 12, just after the 48 hour stage, when the prices come to, tend to go up. I mean, fair play to them. William Hill are normally always first up, and they'll lay, they'll lay, you know, they'll lay a, a decent bet to me. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I often think I'm looking at their early prices they lay and the what prices they go off. They really shouldn't be laying me. I probably shouldn't be saying this because I might have just bollocks that account. But, uh, but I'm being nice to you, William Hill. Um, now, I, 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 if they just turned around to me and said, look, maximum take out of 200 quid until the day of the race, I'd wear it because you know, I'm, I'm probably taking the piss to a large degree. And you know, people in media, 
they, I know for a fact they properly take the piss uh, and they put on for other people. I know of a, a 365 account that was allowed to take out six odd figures before they even, they even blinked because of the person running the account, putting on for professional punters was very, very high up in the racing media and that's not on. Uh, well, people in the racing media do put on for me, but I'm talking tiny money. The, the, the moments I bet now, I wouldn't like to exaggerate because one, you can't really get on and like two, I have reigned, you know, the betting in quite that. But, you know, it's always, betting has always been a good second income to me. My boys always think, oh, I've, um, I've never worked a day in my life because of the, of the job I do. And that's probably true because I do enjoy it. Uh, I'm probably enjoying it less now than I do in one respect, but I love having the outlet of wade in and to actually vent my spleen every Monday. And to be fair to them, rate uh, Betfair, even we've taken on some really kind of like punchy issues that other people won't touch. They've never turned around to me like, you know, Barry all kind of like runs it from the production side of it. He never, never turned around to me and said, look, you are not saying that because, and they, and they, they, they pull me up about what I said on Twitter a few times. And I've just said to them, that's why, that's what I think as a private account. If you think that impacts upon my ability to work with you, then we'll have that discussion. But Betfair have been great because you know, I, I, I think I do hit home with, with a lot of things I say uh, about certain subjects and some things need to be said. Now, I could do it in a, in a bad manner. I could be basically wrong. But like I said, I'll hold my hands up if, I'm, if I am in the wrong. But um, no, I like, uh, I like everything about what I do at the moment, yeah, from, from a professional point of view. Right, Tony, you mentioned hitting home. Yeah. Now, you, you sort of said you're like it's fearsome persona on Twitter. No, but you, say one that. of your that, yeah. one of your blogs reduced people to a blubbering mess. Yeah. When you related the story about the young lad with his toys. No, God. And the little yeah, suitcase. You're like, get me at it now. Yeah. I um. Well, I I, I tell you the story, but people people the, I used to have it pinned up there for a couple of months on my Twitter. But I just basically I was I was in this very garden about nearly two years ago now, and I was having some work done. And I had shirt, it was a busy day, and I had shirt off, and just, well, I wasn't doing any work because I'm fucking useless. I've, ne like, I've never changed a plug, done nothing about cars, never picked up a paintbrush in my life, honestly. Anyway, so I had some work done, and the guy said, I don't know how to look at that on your back. And they took a picture of it. I thought, yeah, I don't either, because it's right in the middle of your back and stuff like that. So I um, he took a picture of it. So I said, I'll, and I just rang my GP. I was sending me a picture, had me in the next day. Um, so I don't like that. They referred me to St. Helier Hospital by the Friday. I went in, went in there, I was incredibly lucky. And they, um, they just said, right, we're having that out. So, actually, what they said to me, he said, uh, what are you doing this afternoon? And I said, well, fuck all now, because it was like, and they said, well, we're doing, we're piling a new scheme, a surgery where we take out, you know, potential skin cancer. We're taking it out on the same day, same day. One of the, just a pilot surgery. So they was there for about an hour and a half. They were just digging out three areas. Um, and I was that that summer. I was going to take four months off because I just fed up with work. I just wanted a complete break. I was going to go have plans for Cyprus and all around Europe and stuff. And they rang me two weeks later and said, "You're not going. You're not going abroad. Getting your ass in here." So I knew, I knew back then. Uh, he, he came back and it was like, yeah. Yeah, stage four, it was quite stage four kind of like melanoma and it was like pretty, uh, it was pretty serious. And I just thought, and they just said, where do you want to be referred? And I said, well, 
refer me where you want. And they said, this is serious, by the way. And I said, fine. Uh, you know, you've got... Yeah, well, and like I say, I'm, I'm quite... Um, I, I give a tough persona, but I did have a kind of like... Driving back, I'd been told that I did have a little tear on, in the car and stuff like that. So uh, they were brilliant. I referred, and this was like early August. Referred me to the Marsden, straight in there. And the turnaround, and I literally had the op on September the 7th. And it was like in the areas they did it, and they took wider, wider bits out. It was massive. Honestly, it was like I was in surgery for about three and a half. And I just, I just wrote, and and when they did the surgery and took out all the lymph nodes, you know, the, the cancer was still in in the system. I won't go into that, but well, you, the, the piece you write about, and when this when this goes up, I'll I'll pin it, I'll I'll, I'll pin it there so people can have a look. I um, so I wrote about it in a very kind of like dark, dry, tempted humorous kind of way, you know you know, sent him to surgery, start bonnet naked, so, you know, you haven't got time to play with the old chap, make it look, look bigger, because there's seven or eight people in the room, you're just thinking, oh God, yeah, yeah. Um, not that I haven't got a very large weapon, obviously, but yeah, uh, which I haven't, but. Um, so I wrote about it, and one that, one that, honestly, I was like, it's in tears, and I was pulling up in a car one day, and if you ever drive into the Marsden in Sutton, on the left, as you walk in, there's a, there's a kid's hospital. And he was, as a little kid, about five or six, he was picking up, uh, they were opening the boot and they gave me his little suitcase and he was like trundling in and obviously going in for treatment. Uh, and I just said, um, you know, he, that was in the early summer and he should have, that should have been taking place at an airport, not a hospital. And I bawled my fucking eyes out and I, I might be start going here actually, because it was just like, Anybody who goes to Mars and sees that kid's stuff, and you know, you, you immediately just don't feel sorry for yourself and stuff. But it took a while to, you know, I had you know a couple of bouts of chemotherapy, had a lot of kind of like uh, problems with that. Um, I would say Paul Key, like I said, he's the, the support he gave me through that. I mean, he's he'd always be a lifelong friend. But the stuff that he used to do, I mean, I remember getting up and I remember, I remember it was early evening. I was here on my own. And I had a lot of, because it was such major surgery on the back of me. I was out in my brother's place in New York last year. He said, it's the first time we saw it. He said, fuck me. It's like, a, you know, you've been attacked by a couple of sharks. And it was, it's a bit, they've got a bit better now. But I remember, um, I got up one, I got up one day from bed because I couldn't really move. And it was in certain parts of your back where every time you moved, you're kind of like, all the scars would rip. And I was there like, and one day all the, all the dressings come off and it was like, anyway, if you're eating now, look away or put your hands in here. But it was like just pus was pissing out all of it, all infected. And Key, I rang here, I said, come round here. So you got to, he, he came round there and redressed it all. I mean, it was like a horror show. And like I said, I'll always be anything he ever wants in his life. I'll, I'll, I'll be quite happy to give it to him. He's like, yeah. And that was, it was quite, an, even just thinking back on it, it's quite emotional. But you've you fought it off, you've beat it now. Uh, you never, never beat something like that. But yeah, um, like I said, they had a couple of bouts of chemotherapy. I have a CT scan every three months. I have an MRI scan every two, uh, six months. That's going to be for the next 10 years. The Everything, um, the Marsden is just an actual sensational hospital. Um, and I've, the care I've been given is unbelievable. Uh, and that's all on the NHS. It's kind of like half private, half NHS, but... Yeah, I mean, if 
you couldn't even, I know it's a cliche, but you couldn't be in better hands. And everything about that place is, in the last two years and ongoing, is impeccable. Both now, both your sons have followed you into the game. Yeah, like is I said. It, is the game bright for them? Um, I prefer them going into it 20 years ago. Um, because like I said, it's, we don't know what's going to happen with the affordability checks. We don't know what's going to happen with the, you know, with the path of the industry. But um, like I said, they've all, I imagine they've always think that I've never worked a, a day in my life because, you know, like they were born in 92, 94. And, uh, you know, I was, they probably really kind of remember when I started at Betfair in 2002. And it's always kind of been a bit, laissez-faire on the work side occasionally and you know they you know you even back then you could work from home or work stroke punt from home and so they saw that and uh, I've never I couldn't be more proud of them they both um, did well at school both went to Regia College funny enough they both went to Liverpool University and both read maths there and they both came back and um, uh, they they gone into the industry Teague my eldest um, He's given me a, a near two-year-old grandson in Rome. Um, he is the business business manager uh, at uh, Oddschecker. He's work he, so he deals with all the bookmakers. So basically, I imagine that he's just uh, go on the piss, taken out for lunch, take them out, take you out. He's very good. He, I think he's just actually signed up for uh, Star Sports uh, with Ben there actually. And and Kane, my youngest, 29. Um, he's had various roles at Sporting Index and other, other firms. He's now, uh, I'm not actually sure what he does, apart from get up about 12 o'clock every day. But yeah, he works for, um, it might work different hours, uh, uh, different hours around the globe because he works for DraftKings. And um, yeah, he's, uh, apparently he's doing very well there. So very proud of them. Yeah, it sounds like they're quite grounded in what they do. Um, and like you said, uh, hopefully the industry will you know, bolster them up for another you know, 20, 20, 30 years before they retire, but hopefully earlier than I do. And on that note, I think we've seen the real Tony Calvin today. Thanks very much. Anyway, Tony, thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for coming.